There's more room up here than down on the floor. Okay, I've entitled my message today, uh, Life in the Spirit. And I don't know what else I could call it because our pastor set me up beautifully last week with his message where he contrasted the old life that results in death and the new life in the spirit. Um, and even the um, subtitle of chapter 8 in Romans is uh, Life Through the Spirit, Life with the Spirit. Um, so we'll just leave it, Life in the Spirit. Um, one of the commentaries on this chapter notes that in the first seven chapters of Romans, the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, is only mentioned four times, but in Romans 8, the Spirit occurs 21 times. Truly, Romans 8 is the Holy Spirit chapter of the book of Romans. Now, I was raised a very conservative Presbyterian. Uh, our church proudly bore the name of Bible Presbyterian because many Presbyterian churches at that time, and maybe continue, were becoming less biblical. But you know, I don't remember hearing a whole lot of messages on the Holy Spirit. And I don't remember that the church members talked much about the Holy Spirit. The assumption was that as long as we study the Bible and sincerely apply the teachings of the Bible to our lives, the Holy Spirit will do his job in our lives. And so we don't have to talk about it all that much. We believed in the Holy Spirit. Of course, we were biblical Trinitarians. But I don't remember. We, we didn't talk much about the gifts of the Spirit either. It's interesting. The church's position was that at least the supernatural gifts, such as tongues and healing and exorcisms, um, were no longer given after the apostolic age or when the Bible, when the New Testament was completed. Uh, but even the non-supernatural gifts, uh, such as so-called non-supernatural, teaching, administration, encouragement, so forth, even those weren't talked about so much. My, uh, I remember when I was in seminary <coughs> 50 long years ago, um, a classmate of mine decided to visit a Pentecostal church and uh, because we kind of had a prejudice about Pentecostal. They were always trying to get people to speak in tongues. You know. So anyway, he visited this church, and when he got back, I said, well, how did it go? He said, it was wild. I said, what do you mean? He said, they were playing this jazzy music, and they were dancing in the aisles. And you have to understand that in my church, both jazz and dancing was evil, all right? My, my old pastor would be horrified to hear the music that my wife introduced to us last week. You remember that song? He'd be doubly horrified that I was clapping to it also. Well, over the years, I've become more open to the Pentecostals and to the charismatic movement in general. I still haven't had the tongues experience, and that doesn't bother me so much. But I do think that despite having taught theology in college for many years, I still have a lot to learn about the Holy Spirit and about what life in the Spirit is all about. So when Dick asked me to, uh, what passage he would like me to speak on in this Sunday series on the Book of Romans, 
I was happy to take Romans 8, and I thought it was a wonderful study, a worthwhile study for me. Now, the words and phrases in these 13 verses in Romans 8, some of them are pretty complex in their meanings, and I can't cover them all. So I chose four key phrases. Matter of fact, they're brief phrases, just two words each. And the first phrase is, no condemnation. In verse 1, Paul says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law, the, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now what does Paul mean by no condemnation? Well, if we go back into chapter 5, verse 18, Paul sets the word con uh, condemnation against its opposite, which is what? Does anybody know? What's the opposite of condemnation? What? Pardon? Well, salvation, it's a, let's see, it's a five-syllable word. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got a justification. Good, that, that's all right. You've you got to humor me. I'm a retired teacher, and I like to feel like I'm back in, the, back in the classroom again. So feel free to answer my questions. That's good. Yeah, justification. Notice what he says in verse 18 of chapter 5. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Now, given the context here, what Paul is saying is that as a result of Adam's sin, condemnation went to all of us. But as a result of the righteous work of Christ, justification comes to all of us. And then if we go back a little bit further in Romans to chapter 3, we learn that when God justifies us, he pronounces us righteous. That's what the word in Greek means, to justify, to pronounce righteous. That is, he as judge, God as judge, puts us in the right with him, even though we're sinners. And God can do this because Christ, the righteous one, paid for the penalty of our sin in his atoning death on the cross. And so in our text today, Paul refers back to that truth by calling Christ our sin offering in verse 3. So God's justification means that we are free from condemnation or that we are free from the penalty of sin. So let's note that. Justification means being set free from the penalty of sin. So here in chapter 8 then, Paul is saying that for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation because God pronounces that we are free from sin's penalty. As he says in verse 2, we are set free from the law of sin and death. But now I think there's something else going on here in this phrase, no, no condemnation. Especially when we consider what Paul has just said in chapter 7, just a few verses before the beginning of today's text. And, our pastor dealt with this last week. In verses 23 and 24, for example, Paul says, I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner 
of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, certainly God's justifying us, frees us from our being subject to death because of sin. But I think Paul here is referring to the need for another kind of rescue. To be rescued from being a prisoner of the law of sin. Now the term law in this case, as commentators suggest, um, can be understood as a principle. It can be uh, understood as uh, a rule, a pattern if you please. Uh, a rule of sin in our lives. The truth about our sinful nature. We need to be rescued from being a prisoner of sin. That, that was the, the great need that Paul raised in chapter 7. And the answer to that need is in Romans 8. He says, excuse me, Paul says in Romans 8, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set us free from the law of sin and death. Notice, the law of the Spirit who gives life. So, the principle or the rule of the Spirit, the, the way the Spirit works in a person's life, frees them from the slavery to sin. The, the Spirit breaks the power of sin in our lives. and gives us victory over our sin as our pastor said last week. So we could say that not only are we not condemned to pay for the penalty of sin, but we are not condemned to a life of slavery to sin. So just as justification frees us from the penalty of sin, so there is also another doctrinal term for being freed from the power of sin or the slavery of sin. Does anyone know what that term is? Oh, okay. Sanctification. Thank you, Israel. I was going to say it's another five-syllable word in case you couldn't guess. So, justification means being set free from the penalty of sin. Sanctification means being set free from the power of sin or the slavery of sin. Now, I think this is what is involved in terms of the full sense of what Paul means when he says there is no condemnation. But then in the second place, let's go back to verse 1 and pick up another two-word phrase. And this, this time it's in Christ. In Christ. Paul says, to repeat, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does in Christ mean? And who are these people who are in Christ? Well, for this, we need to go back to chapter 6. Of Romans. You see, Paul's thinking is very complex. It's, it's very compressed with a lot of truth that has to be dug out, that has to be examined and dealt with step by step. So we have to keep going back and seeing what he's been talking about earlier so we can understand where he's going now in the present text. And in chapter 6, Paul says that if we have been justified by God's grace, something else has happened to us. And that is that the Holy Spirit has come into our lives and done something. He has given us new life. And in chapter 
verse 4 of chapter 6, Paul says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. So he refers to baptism here. Now, as you well know, there are a lot of views about baptism. What does it mean? Um, who is to be baptized? How are they to be baptized? Does baptism mean, uh, does baptiz is baptism itself a means of grace, or does it merely convey or symbolize uh, grace, something like that? I'm talking about water baptism, of course. Um, but minimally, theologians would agree that baptism at least conveys the idea of union with Christ. That's pretty clear in, in Romans 6. And it also, at least in the case of adults, would seem to convey the idea of conversion. Um, being converted from a life without Christ to a life with Christ. By repenting of our sins and exercising faith in Christ as our Savior and Lord, we come into a personal, saving relationship with Christ. And so in that sense, we become united with Christ. We, we become those who are in Christ. Paul in verse 5 of chapter 6 speaks of being united with Christ. And in the last verse of, cha of that chapter, he says... For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the key question here is whether you and I are in Christ. That is, are we in a saving relationship with Christ through faith in him, and thus do we have this new life, which is eternal? So those who are in Christ are those who have been converted to faith in him, and they are then the ones into whose life the Holy Spirit has come to break the power of sin. This conversion then is um, a beginning of a process that I just identified as sanctification. Um, I say it's a process because it doesn't all happen at once. It does have a beginning. There's another theological term for the beginning of sanctification. Does anyone know what that is? A five-syllable word, too. <laughs> Regeneration. Hey, you've got a good class here. Yeah. Or more commonly, the new birth. Being born again, the John 3 concept. Regeneration, then, is the beginning of sanctification. One more question, class. Does anyone know the term used for the completion of sanctification? Five syllables, yeah. <laughs> What's that? Glorification. Israel, thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's see, do we have those on there? Yeah. So justification is freedom from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is freedom from the power or slavery of sin. And glorification is freedom from the presence of sin. That is, someday we'll be free from any sin present in our, in our life. Um, I didn't make this up. This is, you know, what theologians generally... This is how they summarize the totality of the doctrine of salvation. This is what is all involved in the doctrine of salvation. And I thought I'd put it on the screen because I think it's also a helpful way 
to see Paul's argument from about chapter 3 on through the chapter 8. For example, I don't want to oversimplify, but um, chapters 3, 4, and 5 are mainly about justification. Chapters 6, 7, and the first half of 8 are mainly about sanctification. And as we will see in the next couple of weeks, the last half of chapter 8 deals with glorification, resurrection, and the life beyond. Okay, now in the third place then, Paul goes on in verses 5 to 9 to develop a, a contrast between two terms. So here's my third phrase, a contrast between flesh and spirit. And I put in parenthesis there sinful nature because some of the translations translate flesh, sinful nature. Now with this contrast, he clarifies the difference between the one who is in Christ and the one who is not. Now the word flesh, the Greek word is sarx, S-A-R-X, literally, of course, means the stuff that covers your part of your body, the flesh on your body. When, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, you may remember, he, uh, in, in Luke 24, he said, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as, I, as you see I have. Remember that? So it's used in the literal sense there. Or flesh sometimes can mean human nature in general. Uh, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? A reference to the eternal son of God taking on human nature. He became a human being. But flesh can also mean, especially when it's in contrast to the spirit, flesh can take on the connotation of sinful nature. And that's the way it's used here in Romans 8, in the contrast of flesh and spirit. It's also used that way in Galatians chapter 5, where flesh and spirit are contrasted. I find it interesting that in the original translation of the New International Version, they translated Sark's sinful nature. And, and I think it's in the Pew Bibles because you had that edition. But in the more recent edition, the one that I have here, 2011, they went back to translating the word flesh, the more literal rendering. I didn't have enough time to study up why they made that change, but I, I think it's interesting because it, it accentuates the contrast of two simple terms, flesh, spirit. Spirit, that idea. So notice how Paul develops this contrast in verses 5 through 8. Let me just read briefly. Um, yeah, living according to the flesh, living according to the spirit. In verse 5, he says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. So in verse 5, the contrast is. Mind set on sinful flesh desires or sinful desires and the mind set on what the spirit desires. And then in verse 6, he says, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The contrast between death and life and peace. And then in uh, verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Um, so uh, hostile to God does not submit to God's law. 
And even though he doesn't state its opposite, I think the opposite is implied. So we would say then, the mind living according to the Spirit is friendly to God and does submit to God's law. And then verse 8, those who are um, in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. By implication, those who are in the realm of the Spirit, living according to the Spirit, can please God and, and desire to do so. Paul then goes on to verse 9 and says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit lives in you. So the question for you and me is, is the Spirit of God living in you? Is the Spirit of God living in me? Perhaps a good check on how we fare uh, with these uh, items on the right side is a good check as to whether the Spirit of God is living in us or not. Do we, uh, do we desire what the Spirit desires? Do we uh, desire to submit to God's law? Do we desire to please God? Now you might say, I thought as long as we have faith in Christ, the Spirit of God is living in us, whether we do all these things or not. Well, yes and no. Um, I, I think maybe Paul might be saying that if you have a true faith, a living and growing faith in your life, these are the characteristics that you're going to have. Maybe not perfectly, maybe not all the time, but these are the things that at least will exhibit the direction of your life. And that takes me to the fourth and final phrase, and that is an obligation. Yeah, reviewing the outline here, okay. The fourth uh, phrase, an obligation. In verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, what is an obligation? Hmm, one more question. Okay. How would you define obligation, anybody? What is an obligation? Something, it's a have to. Something you must do. Okay. Anyone else? What? You're owing something. Yeah, okay. What's that, command? Commitment. Ah, that's a, yeah, that's a good one. Um, the dictionary says it could be a binding contract, or it could be a promise, a duty, a responsibility. Hmm, a responsibility. You know, the scriptures give us a delicate balance between, on the one hand, God's grace working in our lives that we need, and, on the other hand, our human responsibility to cooperate with that grace. Um, I don't care if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. That delicate balance is there in the scriptures. For example, Paul in uh, uh, Philippians, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, continue to work out your salvation in fear and traveling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. 
Now we can list a lot of things the Holy Spirit does. He, he draws us towards faith in Christ, and when we finally accept Christ, he unites us with Christ, and he breaks the power of sin, and he, he starts the process of sanctification, gives us gifts to be used in the church, etc., etc. But then it really comes down to our human responsibility. What are we going to do with all those things that the Holy Spirit gives us? So what is our obligation in this case, in this particular passage? Paul says it is an obligation not to the flesh but to the spirit. To do what? Well, and notice how he says it. But if by the spirit you put to death the myth, misdeeds of the body, you will live. Okay? We are to put to death to be done with, to get rid of the misdeeds of the body. And notice the delicate balance again. We are to do this, but we will do it by the Spirit. We can't do it without the Spirit, but we have an obligation to do it. You see, this is how the process of sanctification works. Paul makes the same point back in chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Incidentally, this last statement was not a commandment, it was a promise, I think. Paul says, sin shall no longer be your master, I promise you. But then he says, so don't let it. <laughs> There's the balance again. So as the key biblical truth says, the Spirit gives us new life, but we need to live it. So, so how then can we apply this teaching of Romans 8 to, in practice? A lot of things could be said here, but let me just make one suggestion. Something that I have been learning recently that my old church never taught me, at least I can't remember it teaching me, and that is, it's okay to pray to the Holy Spirit. Uh, we... We pray to the Father because that was a standard prayer that Christ gave us. But we also pray to Jesus. Why not pray to the third person of the Trinity? And what to pray? Well, let me suggest something like this. Pray, Holy Spirit, help me to be sensitive to what you desire for me. Lead me away from temptation. And help me to be sensitive to your promptings about what to say and do in seeking to help others. It seems to me this kind of prayer, if prayed periodically throughout the day, throughout the week, just one of many things, one of many ways of living this new life that the Spirit has given us. Barbara and I like um, this prayerful song from the Gettys that we have sung, I think, once or twice. And I'd like to read it and then I'm done. The Holy, Holy Spirit living breath, breathe new life into my willing soul. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and make me whole.
Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. Holy Spirit, come abide within. May your joy be seen in all that I do. Love enough to cover every sin in each thought and deed and attitude. Kindness to the greatest and the least. Gentleness that sows the path of peace. Turn my strivings into works of grace. Breath of God, show Christ in all I do. Holy Spirit, from creation's birth, giving life to all that God has made, show your power once again on earth. Cause your church to hunger for your ways. Let the fragrance of our prayers arise. Lead us on the road of sacrifice. That in the unity, that in unity the face of Christ may be clear for all the world to see. Amen. Let it be.